Section 18 of Self-Help. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Self-Help, with illustrations of conduct and perseverance, by Samuel Smiles. Chapter 7. Industry and the Peerage, Part 1. He either fears his fate too much, or his deserts are small, that dares not put it to the touch to gain or lose it all. Marquis of Montrose. He hath put down the mighty from their seats, and exalted them of low degree. St. Luke. We have already referred to some illustrious commoners, raised from humble to elevated positions by the power of application and industry, and we might point to even the peerage itself as affording equally instructive examples. One reason why the peerage of England has succeeded so well in holding its own arises from the fact that, unlike peerages of other countries, it has been fed, from time to time, by the best industrial blood of the country, the very liver, heart and brain of Britain. Like the fabled Antaeus, it has been invigorated and refreshed by touching its mother earth and mingling with that most ancient order of nobility, the working order. The blood of all men flows from equally remote sources, and though some are unable to trace their line directly beyond their grandfathers, all are nevertheless justified in placing at the head of their pedigree the great progenitors of the race, as Lord Chesterfield did when he wrote Adam de Stanhope, Eve de Stanhope. No class is ever long stationary. The mighty fall, and the humble are exalted. New families take the place of the old, who disappear among the ranks of the common people, Burke's vicissitudes of families strikingly exhibit this rise and fall of families, and show that the misfortunes which overtake the rich and noble are greater in proportion than those which overwhelm the poor. This author points out that of the 25 barons selected to enforce the observance of the Magna Charta, there is now not in the House of Peers a single male descendant. Civil wars and rebellions ruined many of the old nobility and dispersed their families, yet their descendants, in many cases, survive, and are to be found among the ranks of the people. Fuller wrote in his Worthies that some who justly hold the surnames of Bohuns, Mortimers, and Plantagenets are hid in the heap of common men. Thus, Burke shows that two of the lineal descendants of the Earl of Kent, sixth son of Edward I, were discovered in a butcher and a toll-gatherer, that the great-grandson of Margaret Plantagenet daughter of the Duke of Clarence, sank to the condition of a cobbler at Newport in Shropshire, and that among the lineal descendants of the Duke of Gloucester, son of Edward III, was the late sexton of St George's, Hanover Square. It is understood that the lineal descendant of Simon de Montfort, England's premier baron, is a saddler in Tooley Street. One of the descendants of the proud Percys, a claimant of the title of Duke of Northumberland, was a Dublin trunk-maker, and not many years since one of the claimants for the title of the Earl of Perth presented himself in the person of a labourer in a Northumberland coal-pit. Hugh Miller, when working as a stonemason near Edinburgh, was served by a hodman, who was one of the numerous claimants for the Earldom of Crawford, all that was wanted to establish his claim being a missing marriage certificate, and while the work was going on, the cry resounded from the walls many times in the day of, John Yell Crawford, bring us another hud line. 
One of Oliver Cromwell's great-grandsons was a grocer on Snow Hill, and others of his descendants died in great poverty. Many barons of proud names and titles have perished like the sloth upon their family tree after eating up all the leaves, while others have been overtaken by adversities which they have been unable to retrieve, and sunk at last into poverty and obscurity. Such are the mutabilities of rank and fortune. The great bulk of our peerage is comparatively modern, so far as the titles go, but it is not the less noble that it has been recruited to so large an extent from the ranks of honourable industry. In olden times, the wealth and commerce of London, conducted as it was by energetic and enterprising men, was a prolific source of peerages. Thus, the earldom of Cornwallis was founded by Thomas Cornwallis, the Cheapside merchant, that of Essex by William Capel, the draper, and that of Craven by William Craven, the merchant tailor. The modern Earl of Warwick is not descended from the kingmaker, but from William Greville, the wool stapler, whilst the modern Dukes of Northumberland find their head not in the Percys, but in Hugh Smithson, a respectable London apothecary. The founders of the families of Dartmoor, Radnor, Ducie and Pomfret were respectively a skinner, a silk manufacturer, a merchant tailor, and a Calais merchant, whilst the founders of the peerages of Tankerville, Dormer, and Coventry were mercers. The ancestors of Earl Romney and Lord Dudley and Ward were goldsmiths and jewellers, and Lord Dacres was a banker in the reign of Charles I, as Lord Overstone is in that of Queen Victoria. Edward Osborne, the founder of the Dukedom of Leeds, was apprenticed to William Hewitt, a rich cloth worker on London Bridge, whose only daughter he courageously rescued from drowning by leaping into the Thames after her, and eventually married. Among other peerages founded by trade are those of Fitzwilliam, Lee, Peter, Cowper, Darnley, Hill, and Carrington. The founders of the houses of Foley and Normanby were remarkable men in many respects, and, as furnishing striking examples of energy of character, the story of their lives is worthy of preservation. The father of Richard Foley, the founder of the family, was a small yeoman living in the neighbourhood of Stourbridge in the time of Charles I. That place was then the centre of the iron manufacture of the Midland districts, and Richard was brought up to work at one of the branches of the trade, that of nail-making. He was thus a daily observer of the great labour and loss of time caused by the clumsy process then adopted for dividing the rods of iron in the manufacture of nails. It appeared that the Stourbridge nailers were gradually losing their trade in consequence of the importation of nails from Sweden, by which they were undersold in the market. It became known that the Swedes were enabled to make their nails so much cheaper by the use of splitting mills and machinery, which had completely superseded the laborious process of preparing the rods for nail-making then practised in England. Richard Foley, having ascertained this much, determined to make himself master of the new process. He suddenly disappeared from the neighbourhood of Stourbridge, and was not heard of for several years. No one knew whither he had gone, not even his own family, for he had not informed them of his intention, lest he should fail. He had little or no money in his pocket, but contrived to get to Hull, where he engaged himself on board a ship bound for a Swedish port, and worked his passage there. The only article of property which he possessed was his fiddle, and on landing in Sweden he begged and fiddled his way to the Danamora mines near Uppsala. He was a capital musician, as well as a pleasant fellow, 
and soon ingratiated himself with the iron workers. He was received into the works, to every part of which he had access, and he seized the opportunity thus afforded him of storing his mind with observations, and mastering, as he thought, the mechanism of iron splitting. After a continued stay for this purpose, he suddenly disappeared from amongst his kind friends the miners. No one knew whither. Returned to England, he communicated the results of his voyage to Mr. Knight, and another person at Stourbridge, who had sufficient confidence in him to advance the requisite funds for the purpose of erecting buildings and machinery for splitting iron by the new process. But when set to work, to the great vexation and disappointment of all, and especially of Richard Foley, it was found that the machinery would not act. At all events, it would not split the bars of iron. Again Foley disappeared. It was thought that shame and mortification at his failure had driven him away forever. Not so. Foley had determined to master the secret of iron splitting, and he would yet do it. He had again set out for Sweden, accompanied by his fiddle as before, and found his way to the iron works, where he was joyfully welcomed by the miners, and, to make sure of their fiddler, they this time lodged him in the very splitting mill itself. There was such an apparent absence of intelligence about the man, except in fiddle-playing, that the miners entertained no suspicions as to the object of their minstrel, whom they thus enabled to attain the very end and aim of his life. He now carefully examined the works, and soon discovered the cause of his failure. He made drawings or tracings of the machinery as well as he could, though this was a branch of art quite new to him, and after remaining at the place long enough to enable him to verify his observations, and to impress the mechanical arrangements clearly and vividly on his mind, he again left the miners, reached a Swedish port, and took ship for England. A man of such purpose could not but succeed. Arrived amongst his surprised friends, he now completed his arrangements, and the results were entirely successful. By his skill and his industry, he soon laid the foundations of a large fortune, at the same time that he restored the business of an extensive district. He himself continued, during his life, to carry on his trade, aiding and encouraging all works of benevolence in his neighbourhood. He founded and endowed a school at Stourbridge, and his son Thomas, a great benefactor of Kidderminster, who was High Sheriff of Worcestershire in the time of the Rump, founded and endowed a hospital, still in existence, for the free education of children at Old Swinford. All the Foley's were Puritans. Richard Baxter seems to have been on familiar and intimate terms with various members of the family, and makes frequent mention of them in his life and times. Thomas Foley, when appointed the High Sheriff of the county, requested Baxter to preach the customary sermon before him, and Baxter, in his life, speaks of him as of so just and blameless dealing that all men he ever had to do with magnified his great integrity and honesty, which were questioned by none. The family was ennobled in the reign of Charles II. William Phipps, the founder of the Mulgrave or Normanby family, was a man quite as remarkable in his way as Richard Foley. His father was a gunsmith, a robust Englishman settled at Woolwich in Maine, then forming part of our English colonies in America. He was born in 1651, one of a family of not fewer than 26 children, of whom 21 were sons whose only fortune lay in their stout hearts and strong arms. William seems to have had a dash of the Danish sea-blood in his veins, and did not take kindly to the quiet life of a shepherd, in which he spent his early years. 
By nature, bold and adventurous, he longed to become a sailor and roam through the world. He sought to join some ship, but not being able to find one, he apprenticed himself to a shipbuilder, with whom he thoroughly learnt his trade, acquiring the arts of reading and writing during his leisure hours. Having completed his apprenticeship and removed to Boston, he wooed and married a widow of some means, after which he set up a little shipbuilding yard of his own, built a ship, and, putting to sea in her, he engaged in the lumber trade, which he carried on in a plodding and laborious way for the space of about ten years. It happened that one day, whilst passing through the crooked streets of old Boston, he overheard some sailors talking to each other of a wreck which had just taken place off the Bahamas, that of a Spanish ship, supposed to have much money on board. His adventurous spirit was at once kindled, and getting together a likely crew without loss of time, he set sail for the Bahamas. The wreck being well in shore, he easily found it, and succeeded in recovering a great deal of its cargo, but very little money, and the result was that he barely defrayed his expenses. His success had been such, however, as to stimulate his enterprising spirit, and when he was told of another, and far more richly laden vessel, which had been wrecked near Port de la Plata, more than half a century before, he forthwith formed the resolution of raising the wreck, or at all events of fishing up the treasure. Being too poor, however, to undertake such an enterprise without powerful help, he set sail for England, in the hope that he might there obtain it. The fame of his success in raising the wreck off the Bahamas had already preceded him. He applied direct to the government. By his urgent enthusiasm, he succeeded in overcoming the usual inertia of official minds, and Charles II eventually placed at his disposal the Rose Algier, a ship of 18 guns and 95 men, appointing him to the chief command. Phipps then set sail to find the Spanish ship and fish up the treasure. He reached the coast of Hispaniola in safety, but how to find the sunken ship was the great difficulty. The fact of the wreck was more than 50 years old, and Phipps had only the traditionary rumours of the event to work upon. There was a wide coast to explore, and an outspread ocean without any trace whatever of the argosy which lay somewhere at its bottom. But the man was stout in heart and full of hope. He set his seamen to work to drag along the coast, and for weeks they went on, fishing up seaweed, shingle, and bits of rock. No occupation could be more trying to seamen, and they began to grumble one to another, and to whisper that the man in command had brought them on a fool's errand. At length the murmurers gained head, and the men broke into open mutiny. A body of them rushed one day onto the quarter-deck, and demanded that the voyage should be relinquished. Phipps, however, was not a man to be intimidated. He seized the ringleaders and sent the others back to their duty. It became necessary to bring the ship to anchor close to a small island for the purpose of repairs, and, to lighten her, the chief part of the stores was landed. Discontent still increasing amongst the crew, a new plot was laid amongst the men on shore, to seize the ship, throw Phipps overboard, and start on a piratical cruise against the Spaniards in the South Seas. But it was necessary to secure the services of the chief ship carpenter, who was consequently made privy to the pilot. This man proved faithful, and at once told the captain of his danger. Summoning about him those whom he knew to be loyal, Phipps had the ship's guns loaded, which commanded the shore, and ordered the bridge communicating with the vessel to be drawn up. When the mutineers made their appearance, the captain hailed them, and told the men he would fire upon them if they approached the stores, still on land. When they drew back, 
on which Phipps had the stores reshipped under cover of his guns, the mutineers, fearful of being left upon the barren island, threw down their arms and implored to be permitted to return to their duty. The request was granted, and suitable precautions were taken against future mischief. Phipps, however, took the first opportunity of landing the mutinous part of the crew and engaging other men in their places. But by the time that he could again proceed actively with his explorations, he found it absolutely necessary to proceed to England for the purpose of repairing the ship. He had now, however, gained more precise information as to the spot where the Spanish treasure ship had sunk, and, though as yet baffled, he was more confident than ever of the eventual success of his enterprise. Returned to London, Phipps reported the result of his voyage to the Admiralty, who professed to be pleased with his exertions, but he had been unsuccessful, and they would not entrust him with another king's ship. James II was now on the throne, and the government was in trouble, so Phipps and his golden project appealed to them in vain. He next tried to raise the requisite means by a public subscription. At first he was laughed at, but his ceaseless importunity at length prevailed, and after four years dinning of his project into the ears of the great and influential, during which time he lived in poverty, he at length succeeded. A company was formed in twenty shares, the Duke of Albemarle, son of General Monk, taking the chief interest in it, and subscribing the principal part of the necessary fund for the prosecution of the enterprise. Like Foley, Phipps proved more fortunate in his second voyage than in his first. The ship arrived without accident at Port de la Plata, in the neighbourhood of the reef of rocks supposed to have been the scene of the wreck. His first object was to build a stout boat, capable of carrying eight or ten oars, in constructing which Phipps used the adze himself. It is also said that he constructed a machine for the purpose of exploring the bottom of the sea, similar to what is now known as a diving bell. Such a machine was found referred to in books, but Phipps knew little of books, and may be said to have reinvented the apparatus for his own use. He also engaged Indian divers, whose feats of diving for pearls and in submarine operations were very remarkable. The tender and boat, having been taken to the reef, the men were set to work, the diving bell was sunk, and the various modes of dragging the bottom of the sea were employed continuously for many weeks, but without any prospect of success. Phipps, however, held on valiantly, hoping almost against hope. At length, one day, a sailor looking over the boat's side down into the clear water observed a curious sea plant growing in what appeared to be a crevice of the rock. He called upon an Indian diver to go down and fetch it for him. On the red man coming up with the weed, he reported that a number of ship's guns were lying in the same place. The intelligence was at first received with incredulity, but on further investigation it proved to be correct. Search was made, and presently a diver came up with a solid bar of silver in his arms. When Phipps was shown it, he exclaimed, Thanks be to God, we are all made men. Diving Bell and divers now went to work with a will, and in a few days treasure was brought up to the value of about £300,000, with which Phipps set sail for England. On his arrival, it was urged upon the king that he should seize the ship and its cargo, under the pretense that Phipps, when soliciting his majesty's permission, had not given accurate information respecting the business. But the king replied that he knew Phipps to be an honest man, and that he and his friends should divide the whole treasure amongst them, even though he had returned with double the value. 
Phipps' share was about £20,000, and the king, to show his approval of his energy and honesty in conducting the enterprise, conferred upon him the honour of knighthood. He was also made High Sheriff of New England, and during the time he held the office, he did valiant service for the mother country and the colonists against the French, by expeditions against Port Royal and Quebec. He also held the post of Governor of Massachusetts, from which he returned to England and died in London in 1695. Phipps, throughout the latter part of his career, was not ashamed to allude to the lowness of his origin, and it was matter of honest pride to him that he had risen from the condition of common ship carpenter to the honours of knighthood and the government of a province. When perplexed with public business, he would often declare that it would be easier for him to go back to his broad axe again. He left behind him a character for probity, honesty, patriotism and courage, which is certainly not the least noble inheritance of the House of Normanby. End of section 18